0: Uh, Eloise read our text for us this morning, um, and the text really is about how to solve conflict. How to solve conflict. Now, all of your life, you have come face to face with conflict. Um, When you were a toddler... You understood what it was like to deal with conflict. You go down to the preschool and you watch one toddler take a pacifier away from another toddler and just see what happens. Um, kids understand conflict, whether it's on the playground or in the classroom. Teenagers experience conflict, whether it's in relationships or whether it's in academics or whether it's on, in sports. Uh, students who are in college understand conflict, whether it is a challenge to their belief system or whether issues in a dorm room or even just relationships. Adults understand conflict, whether it be with coworkers, or neighbors or church members or in marriage or even, again, on the ball field. Just this week, a parent shared with me at a local ball field not far from here Some 5- to 8-year-old girls were playing softball. One team was kind of the way it was described to me, the all-star team, and the other team was just some 5- to 8-year-old girls. And the non-all-star team previous to Tuesday night's game had beaten the all-star team for the first time. And so they gather on Tuesday night for this game, and at the end of three innings, the game is a tie. So they have to go into extra innings, and uh, the, uh, the all-star team gets up to bat. They score like fourteen runs, and um, then the coach on the other team comes out and says, "Now wait a minute. We're after seven runs. You know the teams are supposed to swap um, from the field and batting, and it became so contentious that they had to bring the commissioner." of the five- to eight-year-old girls' softball team. Didn't know there was such a position. But to make a long story short, when the commissioner ruled that they should have stopped after the scoring seven runs and took seven runs off the field, parents became ballistic. The way she described it to me, it was utter pandemonium between parents and coaches. Now, here's the best part. All of these kids go to school together. And most of these parents, dear ones, are sitting in their church today holding hands and singing Kumbaya. And we wonder, we wonder why younger people struggle with authority. Conflict is defined as the active disagreement between people with opposing opinions or principles. Conflict is defined as uh, fighting between two or more groups of people or countries. If you Google conflict resolution, you will get 235 million results. And among those results, you're going to find the seven keys, the nine principles, and the five steps to better relationships. If you Google conflict resolution in the church, you get 37,100,000 results. In other words, it doesn't look very different between the sacred and the secular. The simple fact of life is that when two or more broken, sinful people come together, sooner or later, disagreements will arise. And these disagreements can lead to hurt feelings, tension, backbiting, and if left untreated, all out opposition. Now, we all know as Christ followers who are seated in this room today, that we are not yet fully sanctified. And if we are not careful, we can be the ones either in the midst of the conflict or we can be the ones adding fuel to the fire. Unresolved conflict can be a church killer because left unchecked, small conflicts can quickly turn into factions of one group against another. And what happens then is that when people begin to choose sides, bitterness sets in. And the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 19, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. One translation says a brother offended is harder won than a well-fortified city. In other words, When bitterness sets in, people cannot and will not budge. Our text today, as we're walking through the book of Galatians, in verses 8 through 20, is about conflict between a pastor and a church planner and the churches of Galatia. It is a conflict between Paul and the members of the church in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Now, Paul had already been the victim of false perceptions. In his letter to the churches of Corinth, he had to deal with Uh, many who were saying he is not what he appears in his letter. For example, in 2 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul is writing and he says, For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. And then Paul writes, Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Some say he is not an apostle even though he claims to be. This we have already seen in our study of Galatians. As the Judaizers were claiming, Paul did not have the right to say he was an apostle. One of the complaints against the apostle Paul is that he was a bully. Right? He's a church bully and not a tender pastor. For example, uh, let me read to you a text from Paul in 1 Thessalonians. And you tell me if this sounds like a bully or a tender pastor. He says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become so very dear to us. When conflict arises, how are we to address it? We can learn some things from this text today. The first good question to ask is, how did we get here? Or how did it come to this? Now just as a reminder of the text Eloise read for us earlier, Paul begins by saying, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, and notice Paul says, Or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again? to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. In 1984, again in 2011, and then again in 2015, I stood in a Buddhist temple and watched as scores of men and women were bowing down and offering prayers and incense to giant statues made of wood and stone. You cannot help when you walk into a Buddhist temple and observing people worshiping these idols. You cannot help but have a broken heart. You want to stand up and you want to shout from the very top of your voices, Dear people, wake up! Open your eyes. If you continue this path that you are on, it will lead you to hell. Dear ones, see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Who came and laid down his life for you. In a similar way, the Galatians were like the people of Romans chapter 1. Where Paul said, since creation, God has made himself evident to them. But what did they do? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped God creation rather than the creator and now that they have come to know God Paul is saying to the churches of Galatia why have you turned back why are you now worshiping worthless things so Paul is saying to them as he begins this section that they have forgotten who they used to be And now Paul is expressing his disappointment because of their immaturity. He's expressing disappointment because of their lack of discernment. In Paul's mind, he cannot fathom how they could so quickly forget their former bondage to sin and abandon this new freedom that they have found in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul says, I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. In fact, if you look at verse 20, Paul says, I am perplexed about you. That is a word that literally, it's Paul saying, I am at my wit's end. By the way, if you're a child, you've probably heard your mother make that statement before. I am at my wit's end. This is Paul expressing his heart to the people at Corinth. Paul is saying, how did we come to this place? How did we get to a place where we heard the truth and we responded to the truth and we were walking in the truth and we were living in the truth and now all of a sudden we have laid the truth aside? So, Paul needs to remind them of who they are. We should ask the question who are we? When you go to verse 12 and following, you're going to hear Paul use words like brothers as he says in verse 12, or spiritual children in verse 19. This vigorous apologist and church planter by the name of the Apostle Paul now becomes Paul the loving pastor. He's pleading with them. And he uses terms of endearment and affection, calling them brothers and calling them spiritual children begging them to return to the truth that they once embraced he begs them to become like him and in other words free and satisfied in Jesus Christ he says I introduced you to freedom please don't turn back to slavery in verse 13 he says you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time No one is sure what his illness was. Perhaps it was malaria while Paul was taking the gospel to the mosquito-infested coast of Pamphylia, which, by the way, is not far from the uh, Lycus River Valley where the churches of Galatia are found. Uh, Some believe that he had a painful eye disorder. And the text alludes to that. By saying, many of you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Some believe that he may be suffering the effects of the stoning that he survived in Lystra. Whatever Paul's ailment was, it was serious enough for Paul to come under the care of the Galatians. And Paul says, when I came to you, And I was broken. And I was hurting. You took me in. And you cared for me. And you treated me like I was an angel of God. You treated me and you welcomed me like you would treat and welcome Jesus himself. That's what Paul said. What respect and compassion they gave to this pastor, church planter, and preacher of the gospel. And then Paul says, something happened. Something changed. He asked them, where is that sense of blessing that you had? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So Paul's point is clear. When he first came and gave them the gospel, they dearly loved him. And now, after only a few years, Paul says, Am I now your enemy? Have I so quickly become your enemy simply by telling you the truth? And the same people who saw Paul as an angel now are treating him like he is the enemy himself. Begs the question, who changed? It wasn't Paul. His message remained the same. But when he confronted them on their break from the true gospel, they Turned on him. They became defensive. And Christian unity was threatened. Because Paul had just spoken the truth. How ironic. That the same. Kinds of problems arise. Today. Dear ones. I I think these. Words are written. In sacred scripture. To guide us and to help us understand how we should respond to conflict. I think Paul is trying to help the churches of Corinth understand that truth can always be a healer. But the only way truth can heal is if all of us are willing to take off our pride and clothe ourselves with. And humility, and compassion. This does not mean that conflicts will disappear. But it does mean that honor to God will come when God's people facilitate reconciliation. Look what he says in verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And so now Paul is reminding them about who their real enemies are. The real enemies are the Judaizers. This group of people that has no real interest in the churches beyond entrapping them in legalism. Right? And their desire is for them, the believers, to take their eyes off of Jesus and put their eyes on the false teachers themselves. And by the way, friends, this is still the pattern today. Julie and I earlier this morning are just reading of a pastor who is wrapped up and one of the key leaders in the prosperity gospel movement driving fancy cars with massive homes and 1000000 multi-million dollar airplanes All taking money from people sitting in the pew And now his latest God has told him He is going to remain in the pulpit Until he is 110 years old So that he can keep fleecing his people A characteristic of false teachers Is that they always want people to follow them not Jesus you will never hear them sing just turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face right because the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory Bob in the light of his glory. They will not sing those words. Instead, look at me. Paul is showing us when we are in conflict, we must remember that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the spiritual children of God. How quickly we can abandon this clear truth when we demand our way, our rights. We are brothers and sisters. We are God's spiritual children. And dear ones, this alone should give us pause before we ever say anything critically of another member of God's Family. And by the way, hear me, that includes social media. We ought to be thinking long and hard before we just spew. Well, what is our goal? What should your goal be? If you have a strained relationship, whether you're a toddler or a child or a teenager or a college student or an adult sitting in the stands watching 5- to 8-year-old girls play softball knowing this game is not going to be on the highlights on ESPN. Would you please just glance at verse 19 for a moment? My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, and you ought to take your Bibles and you ought to underline or highlight the phrase until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is formed in you. Now you say, Pastor, did Paul really put an exclamation point at the end of verse 19? Well, it's in the book. Paul brought the gospel to the Galatians. He labored over their spiritual growth, much like a mother who labors in childbirth. Uh, I I will speak with a pastor's heart to this. Any pastor will tell you that when conflict arises in the body of Christ, and occasionally it does, every God-called pastor will labor over the issue long after everybody else has gone to bed. When everybody else is sleeping soundly. Often we cannot find our own rest. Shepherds will labor over their sheep when he sees them stray. When he sees them in conflict either with him or with others in the church. A lot of times it's a private burden that we have to carry. Just like a mother carries the private burden of the anguish of childbirth. Why? This is why. Because we want to see Christ formed in us. And dear ones... We want to see Christ formed in our flock. We want to see a group of men and women and college students and teenagers and boys and girls looking like Jesus. Sounding like Jesus. Acting like Jesus. In the pew and on the bench. In the pew and in the stands. In the pew and in the classroom. The goal of conflict resolution is the same as every other aspect of the Christian life. It is Christ-likeness. Sometimes... When God's people are in conflict, and there does not seem to be a resolution, most of the time it's because we really don't want this. We want our way. The word formed is a verb, and it carries the idea of essential form. In other words, it's not just the exterior, it's what's happening on the inside. Paul reminds us that Christ likeness is always to be the goal of the Christian life. So let me just wrap this up with uh, some application. All right, so what should we do? If the Apostle Paul and the early churches that he formed uh, ran into occasional conflict, how should we handle it when conflict arises today? Well, let me give you four things. Real quick this morning. Number one, we should always be praying for unity. Praying for unity. I mean, dear ones, why fight a cancer that you could avoid? (laughs) And the same is true for conflict among believers. If we can remain spiritually empowered and hold up unity as our highest ideal, we're doing a lot to protect our unity. Go back and read John 17. I want you to picture John 17, the prayer of Jesus. Not Jesus teaching us to pray, Jesus praying. And you go back to John 17... Here is John 17, and on one side of John 17, you have the listening ears of the apostles. And on the other side of John 17, you have the cross of Calvary that Jesus is facing just a few hours away. And in the midst of that, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is praying for the unity of God's people. If it's important for Him, it ought to be important for us. We should be praying for for unity. Number two when conflicts arise own your own part. Susie Howe brought me a gift um, uh, several years ago Susie. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, It was during the Honduras yard sale. Uh, She saw it. It said the toddler and she thought of her pastor. (laughs) So thank you Susie. Uh, This is called the toddler laws of property. Right. In other words if I touch it it's mine. If I want it, it's mine. If it's yours, it's mine. If it looks like it, it's mine. If I think it's mine, it's mine. My only problem with this shirt is that they don't make it in extra large and large for you and me. Right? Because you could easily scratch away the word toddler and put adults because sometimes this is exactly the way we act. The reason why we laugh at that is because it's true, isn't it? You know what the number one question every adult should ask when conflict arises in a relationship, whether it's at church or at home or at work or in a classroom? We ought to go And stand in front of a mirror and ask ourselves this question What is it like? (laughs) What is it like to stand on the other side of me? If I'm unwilling to budge and I'm kind of mean spirited about it. And it's going to be my way or the highway? Where's the humility in that? Where's the compassion that Jesus displayed in that? It's not there. And so we should... Own our own part. Do you know, I believe, how much conflict would fade away if we would just be honest and realize I'm probably the culprit here? I can think of two, maybe three um, serious disagreements my wife and I have had in um, 29 years of marriage. We'll be married 29 years in just a couple of weeks. And I can think of maybe three serious disagreements we've had and every single time, it's me. I was the source of the conflict. Now you're out there saying, we do that already. <laughs> I mean, dear ones, it's, it's true. In the midst of conflict, you go stand in the mirror with the conflict in your mind and ask yourself, what is it like to stand on the other side of me and see if God will use that? to produce humility in your heart and compassion in your spirit. Number three, talk to and not about someone. In other words, we should always go to the source of the conflict. Now, can I be honest? Christians are not real good at this. And if you don't believe that, just, you know, take an hour and just thumb through Facebook. Or Twitter. Um, We're really good about pointing out the speck in everybody else's eye. Not paying any attention to the two before sticking out of our own. Always go to the source of the conflict. Going to others in order to get them to see our side of the conflict is always easier than going to the source. Why? Because sin is always made out to be easier and better. It's easier for me to go to others and get them to band on my side hoping maybe somebody else or whatever the situation is, they'll crack, they'll break, they'll fall, they'll stumble and we can rejoice and say, see, I told you so. We must remember Proverbs six nineteen, where it says, God hates those who sow discord among the brethren. And dear ones, that includes social media. Now, I know it's not easy to listen to a sermon like this. It's not always easy to preach a sermon like this. But when we make a commitment to walk through a book of the Bible and teach the Word the way that it is written, we have to deal with sometimes difficult passages. But let me show you the joy. Let me show you what can happen. What do we do in conflict resolution? We do this. We keep at it until Christ is fully formed. First in me and then in whoever else is involved. We just keep at it. Right? We keep at it until Christ is formed in us, until we begin taking the very shape and essence and thought pattern and behavior and actions of Jesus Himself. And by the way, what's the greatest example of that? Let's close with this. Take your Bibles. I don't want you to look at it on a screen. I want you to see it on the page. Take the Bible in your lap or on your phone or on your iPad or however you're reading it. I want you to take your Bible and I want you to go to Philippians chapter 2. And this is where we're going to stop. Philippians chapter 2. And let's begin with verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ... Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then notice verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul's saying here? Jesus lived this way. Jesus functioned this way. Jesus walked this way. And Jesus talked this way. And so let's pursue it ourselves. And let's work and work and work to bring unity and joy and peace and restoration. And let's stay at it and at it and at it until we see Jesus in each other. But especially until God sees Jesus in us. What is God's agenda for your life? Right? Whether you're in the balcony or downstairs, whether you're like these young guys who are close to the pulpit and Bob, right? Yes, whether you're there or whether you're in the upper deck, listen to me this morning. God's agenda for your life is found in Romans chapter 8 where Paul says that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. God wants you and I to look like Jesus. And the best goal in solving conflict and in reconciling is that you and I could look more and more like Jesus. And when we resolve conflict in a marriage or in the church or in any kind of a relationship, whether it be the ball field or the classroom or whatever it is, when we solve it in a way that honors and glorifies God, what an incredible witness to the power of the gospel. We get to give to our city that so desperately needs God's people to look like God's people and act like God's people and love and serve and live like God's people. That's God's plan. That's God's agenda. And that, dear ones, is what we are called to pursue.